Hi, and welcome to the Strategy Hero podcast, the podcast that's all about diving into the world of business strategy, transformation, and operational excellence. Featuring insights and experiences from some of the most successful leaders in the field, I'm joined by Rachel Neiman. Rachel is a digital non-executive director, business advisor, and leadership coach whose executive career spans the private, public, and not-for-profit sectors in the UK and internationally. She is a governor and chair of the Digital Committee of Birkbeck, University of London, a non-executive director and member of the Environmental, Social and Governance Committee of TPX Impact PLC, and sits on the board of the Campaign for Social Science and Digital Health London. She was a member of the Board of Digital Leaders for 10 years and chaired the organization for three. Rachel is a frequent speaker at UK and international conferences, is a regular judge of digital awards, a member of the International Coaching Federation and a fellow of the RSA. But today, she is our strategy hero. Thank you so much for, for joining us, uh, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So today, um, when we were coming up with what we wanted to talk about on this episode, there were, there were quite different topics. But one thing that really, mm-hmm. I, I believe, looking at um, your, your career and, and talking to you, and talking to our, our producer, what what comes across to me is that although that you can describe your career in, in a lot of different ways, the thing that is quite constant is is change, and that's something that um, I I really want to talk well hear about today from from yourself. So, um, what have you found to be uh, re- a recurring set of challenges in in overcoming um uh change issues and and really delivering on on transformation in your career i think one of the key things to remember is how quickly uh the pace of change is accelerating so particularly in the digital world um we're seeing developments uh that 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 are increasing at an unbelievably rapid rate so if you think in less than 20 years i mean the, the iphone for example apple's iphone was uh, introduced in 2007. So in less than 20 years, they've released 34 different models. That's a huge number. And that's just one particular company. And today, in 2023, absolutely everything that we do, socially, politically, economically, at home, work, um, with our friends, is uh, dictated and defined by data and by digital technology. So it's become an absolute uh, full full part of everything we do. So alongside that quick pace of change, we have to adapt to that. Businesses have to adapt to that. Uh, Systems and organizations have to adapt to that. And what we're finding is that it's very difficult to keep up. So that change curve is becoming steeper and steeper and steeper and more and more difficult to achieve. So I think the reality of the digital world that we live in requires a different approach to change where we're constantly seeing change as the new normal. Change is the only constant. And to try and keep doing things in the way that we've always done them, however successfully we however successful we've been at doing them that way, is just not going to work in a world which is continuously evolving. In your experiences um, working with senior leaders and, and execs, um, do you feel that that resistance to change perhaps 
is something that comes from the top or is it more of a organization-wide issue where it's just this is how we've always done things and while you know over there they may they may feel that there's a need to change our industry you know hospitality for example uh we don't feel that need to change is there something that starts at the top or is it something that it just permeates throughout and there's not really any one area that that really um you know starts and ends this this reluctance to change i'm not sure that it's a, a consistent reluctance to change i think there are lots of organizations and uh, and people uh, who, who who want to change and understand the need for change i think it's more uh, industries and organizations that perhaps don't see the rationale for change and don't feel it's relevant to them and what i would say to those types of organizations is that to quote einstein the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. So if you're happy with just maintaining the status quo and continuing to do something that has made you reasonably successful, okay, but you're never going to move forward. You're not going to grow. You're not going to gain competitive advantage. And most likely other organizations around you are going to disrupt you um, and gain that competitive advantage instead. So there is, there can be a reluctance at the top of the organization to understand the real rationale for change and why it is so important to do things differently because change is a massive undertaking and uh, it can, can, can feel, um, you know, can feel almost impossible um, to some traditional organizations and traditionally successful organizations that, as I say, don't necessarily see the need to change. However, also, it can be very difficult to get um, people in your workforce to change. I mean, people are very wedded to the way they've always done things, there's familiarity that and being told to do something differently is innately uncomfortable mm. now there are people who love innovation doing things differently taking a different route to work those sorts of things but more often than not people find change threatening so having the right approach to change and the right way of communicating the rationale for change is really key we we spoke to a we spoke to pascal dennis um, on one of our episodes, and he is a, a leader in, in lean manufacturing systems. And mm-hmm. he argues that, um, and this is something that I know our, our audience probably finds a little bit um, a little bit shocking. But I think if you if you bear with, and as you hear Pascal talk about this, it kind of makes sense, which is that your your core business. Is your core business and you shouldn't try to maintain it but in order to to grow to, to your point rachel you, you have to think about digital transformation you have to embrace it and and pascal's point is lean is dead <laughs> and it's not enough and in, in fact you need to be thinking about innovation consistently you need you need to be trying to drive change from the top down and i think what what's stood out to me just then when when you were talking is, is talking about sort of People are going to be reluctant to it, but there are tools and there are techniques to help you to to really um, address in an effective way that that change, um, mm. that change journey. What do you what do you feel are those those tools that will help you with change management? What 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 do you consistently bring to the table when you are talking to um, 
you know, business leaders and in terms mm. of change management? So change is all about ultimately making something better and doing something differently for a positive reason, not just because we feel like it. So again, I go back to the why. What is the rationale? What is the reason for doing this? What are the benefits of change for the organization, for the individuals within the organization, for clients, for the supply chain, for shareholders, stakeholders, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I'm a great fan of Simon Sinek and his uh, TED Talk, Start With Why. Um, and I really do feel that when people understand why they're being asked to do something differently, they're far more likely to do it than if they're just told to do something different. So I think part of the secret to successful change is being very people-centered in the way you go about that change. You need to engage whether it's your, the senior team, you need to engage your entire workforce and possibly your shareholders, other stakeholders, in the reason for the change and to believe that this is actually going to make your lives better. Often people uh, function on a kind of what's in it for me basis. If you can tell your, somebody in your workforce that actually their job is going to be easier, their job is going to be more efficient, their job is going to be um, more productive. These are very positive things. People go to work to do a good job. Nobody goes to work to do a bad job. Um, and if they feel that this is being done to support them and help them, and that you put in place the right training, support, communication around it, then you're much more likely to succeed. So there's a huge thing for me about being very people-centered, understanding the teaching, you know, explaining the why, giving people the support they need, hearing their concerns, the change curve, as we know, it goes through um, a range of different emotions, and we need to be accepting of that. Some people accept change more quickly than others. So I think often within the workplace, having a, uh, a, a group of early adopters as acting as your sort of internal ambassadors for change and your internal change agents can be massively powerful as well because peers tend to listen to their peers. So often if it is a very top-down change mandate, it may not be as easy to work through as something that is more of a peer-to-peer -peer change mandate. So I would really recommend starting with why, focusing on the early adopters and getting them on side, thinking about the benefits and the outcomes and uh, doing it in an inclusive way. In, in terms of um, those, I guess, internal champions of, of change, what, what would make up, what, what's in the, if I can talk as a marketer for a second, what, what is that persona? What, what are the qualities of, of that person that you'd be looking for internally? Is it someone at the, is it someone at the top of the of the tree? Is it someone towards the middle, towards the bottom? Does it really matter where they are, or or is it great? You know, is it better to have several champions that can affect change, of around change? Um, you know, what what would make up that that sort of person mm. in your mind? First of all, it has to be uh, championed and endorsed and embodied by the the, the leader of the organisation. So the CEO, the executive team cannot abdicate responsibility 
for the success of that change. They cannot just say, well, this is something that the IT team need to be worrying about or the transformation director needs to worry about. The, the senior team, the senior people have to role model why this change matters, why this change is going to be a good thing. Then I don't think it matters where your change agents come. And in fact, it's probably best if you have them at all levels of the organization, because those people are going to be the people who are instinctively interested in innovation, in experimentation, in doing something different, and will have that energy um, and that enthusiasm that will inspire others. So you need a leader at the very top who has a clear vision for what this change will do, is able to communicate that in a way that inspires follow followership, that inspires people to follow him, and then empower individuals throughout the organization who equally have an enthusiasm for this change to become those catalysts within the organization, those, those, um, th those, those energetic motivators, if you like, that help to create a movement for change and a culture of interest and excitement about change rather than a fear of change. So let, let's say that I'm one of your one of your clients. I'm a leader in a hospitality organization. Mm -hmm. And I said, Rachel, I have a, you know, I have a team of 20, you know, 20 execs. We have an organization of five to ten thousand people. We're across mm -hmm. Two, three continents. Like we're, we're we're a fairly large organization. This is a great organization, by the way. Um, <laughs> what what would the typical process be if I said to you, we we realize that um, we realize that after COVID, we need to change. We made some change, mm -hmm. but it really wasn't embraced. And and now actually, we can see that our competitors are changing, and it's really mm -hmm. impacting our bottom line. Mm -hmm. We've got a mandate to to embrace, um, I don't know, contactless check-ins, um, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, getting, uh, you know, in, introducing some sort of um, some sort of digital assistance with mm -hmm. things of that nature. So we have a whole uh, menu of different uh, initiatives that we believe we need to to you know, to embrace and and, and to deliver mm -hmm. upon really stay competitive with with our with our market what would that what would that process look like if i came to you and said this is the challenge that's in front of me i need to get people on board and i need to do it pretty quickly mm -hmm. and effectively what would that process be with that challenge uh, set to you so that's a very interesting question uh and as ever it would slightly depend but i think in in broad brush strokes i would want to ensure that that leader had a very clear vision of what the future state would be. So what is it that he sees as the, the end point? What is that vision? What is the destination of this, this change journey that he's going to be leading his people on? And to ensure that he can, he can, he can communicate that in an inspiring and empowering way. Then I suppose I would suggest um, that he starts to identify the again the, the people in the organization who are going to be most important to him for that change similarly the people that might be the blockers to that change and to start to communicate the reasons for 
that change. So I think starting with, with um, communicating a clear vision is absolutely the first point. I think something that we need to remember is that actually only 30% of transformations succeed, which is a very small number. That means 70% fail. And it's often because those transformations focus primarily on purely the technology. This is a transformation. We need a new system. This will technology will do it all. We need to get bring in IT. Let's get in an incredibly expensive system. Job done. Absolutely not. The transformations, those 30% of transformations that are successful, are because it isn't all about the technology. So again, it's the cultural change that is the most important and often the most difficult to achieve. And that's why getting people on board, understanding the culture, explaining the new culture, explaining the why, helping people to see why this is a good thing, helping people to work through any, any fears or any negativity, providing support, listening, being constantly empowering people to give their views, being inclusive in the process is essential because it's only then when you've got people in the right space culturally that you then ensure that they have the best technology to achieve what they need to achieve. So the technology is the enabler. The technology mm -hmm. is not the end. It's the means to the end. And very often people forget that. And senior leaders think, if I just bring in a lot of technology, everything will be fine. And it won't. In 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 the worlds of um, in the world of Hoshin Kanri as a as a methodology for for strategy execution, it often fails, like you say, there in, in terms of well, it's not exactly a technology, but that fails because that cultural change um, just really hasn't been addressed effectively. And mm -hmm. I think that's something mm -hmm. that consistently comes up um when when I when I talk to when I talk to our audience uh, about mm -hmm. sort of their, mm -hmm. their challenge. Is there a particular framework that you would use or recommend? I mean, you know, because clearly, as, as you say, um, having that vision and bringing bringing clarity and excitement to to this this massive thing mm -hmm. that you're trying to achieve is is important. But is there any particular framework that you would adopt? In, in embracing that change management uh, process? Or is it more of a case of, well, we know that there's a tool, that we, we have a toolkit and we know that we need mm. to apply X, Y, and Z because that's what's appropriate in this instance. Is, is, it, is it more of a, I'm listening to the needs of this exec or is it, okay, well, actually I know that in my experience, mm. This looks like a situation and therefore I have this framework that I would, I would apply from, from the jump. I guess it's a little bit of both. So um, inevitably, you know, we'll draw on our own experiences and, you know, the lessons that we've learned and what we know has been successful. But again, it's really important to listen to what the client needs and to listen to what the organization needs. Because if you go in to support an organization with a preconception and an assumption that this is going to be exactly like that one that we did 20 years ago, or that one that we did five years ago, or even that one that we did last week, yeah. you might miss something. 
So again, I would always suggest going in, listening, understanding, asking the questions, what is it that we are really trying to achieve? What is the problem that we're really trying to solve? Because if we're just trying to change something for change's sake, that's not a good reason. And that's probably not going to work. So again, going back to that 30%, do we know what we're trying to achieve, why we're trying to achieve it, what the benefits are going to be, how long it will take for the ROI on those benefits to come through? Are all the shareholders and stakeholders completely bought in? Yes to all of those, okay. Then let's start to implement the change following potentially the preferred framework of the organization. There are plenty of, of um, methodologies for change management. In some ways, um, my view is don't overthink it, you know, but ensure that you have the engagement to carry it through and that you really understand the end. How, how do you reward um, those people in, in the organization that, well, how do you, how do you recommend to reward people in the organization that really are those champions that we talked about a little bit earlier? Is there anything that, is it a case of you, you know, you, you want to reward them because they're, do, you know, representing the right behaviors, or do you want to empower them further to, I, I guess, um, affect more change? I mean, I, I can think of when I worked for a, one of the, one of the biggest um, oil and energy companies in the world. Um, and, and I worked on a, an internal comms um, project and it was a massive change. It was around, it was actually redefining their entire proposition um, for the sector. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of, there was a lot of um, change that came, came with that. And I remember we had a, we did have a program around basically internal champions. I can't say the name because mm -hmm. I'll give up the company, but we had a program around um, empowering those internal champions and, and our, our way of rewarding um, those internal champions was um, it was monetary. And there was also, um, you know, I guess, kudos, they were highlighted, mm -hmm. they were showcased as, as being someone who, you know, really had gone the extra mile. Is there a, what would you recommend to, to, to business leaders listening right now in terms of rewarding those people that are championing their cause? I think giving those people some airtime, as you say, to, to, to profile them, to, to, to show why they are making a huge contribution and a huge difference to the company. Because ultimately the change is about having a positive outcome, having a better outcome, increasing productivity, increasing the bottom line, increasing profitability, increasing effectiveness, um, growing, increasing reach. So if somebody is supporting you to do that internally, then absolutely, I would give them as much kudos and as much exposure as possible, because that kind of thing is deeply rewarding and motivational. Of course, if you can make a monetary reward, that's great. But I think some of this is, 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 is not a transactional you know, you've done a really great job, here's, here's, here's a bonus. Um, of course, that, that matters. But I think it's more important in some ways to reward the right behaviours with um, something that makes people feel that they've achieved something, that makes people feel that they are of value. I think this is about the non-monetary value of this sort of contribution to the business in terms of the right behaviours 
the right values, the right way of doing things, because that's what needs to become embedded throughout the organization. So if it's just a private transaction of, you know, you've got a bonus in your pay packet, that's not going to, that's not going to translate into, into more change. That's not going to translate into further change agency. If people see somebody being rewarded in terms of profile for what they've done, then they'll say, oh, I could do that. And how exciting. I'd like to do that. Let me, let me join in. That's the way the movement becomes a real movement. So, and everybody likes to be praised um, for, for what they do. Um, you know, having, uh, having lunch with the CEO, you know, something like that, 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 is, that is special and different and personal. I think this goes back to the point about change is about being people-centric. So what is it that's going to really mean something for that individual? We, we've talked a lot about um, sort of what goes into what goes into change. For our audience, is there is there an example in your career of of a I don't want to call it a project. I don't feel like that's fair. That's it's not a project clearly, but. Is there an example of a of a transformation that you've helped with that really stands out to you? And if so, um, again, without revealing too much that's identifiable, you know, what sort of industry was that? Um, who did you engage with? What were some of the challenges? And how did you measure and then you know communicate the success of of that that change initiative? Mm. Um. I guess there have been many, but um, one that stands out was helping a or working with a large not-for-profit organisation over here in the in the UK to um, adopt and to, to 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 develop and adopt a digital-first way of working. So that was very much about how do you start putting digital systems. Uh, into the day-to-day -day operation of the organization? How do you free up people's time to focus on higher value work? How do you um, increase uh, the responsiveness of the organization to its clients and its client base by implementing technology? How do you use data in a much more effective way to improve the efficiency and the effectiveness of that organization. So there were a lot of different ways of looking at this to create a digital first organization. What does that mean internally? Well, that means making sure that everything is joined up, that systems are talking to each other, that there's interoperability, that people can talk to each other. It's also making sure that people work in a horizontal, not in a siloed way. So there's a lot about how do you then uh, re-engineer business processes. It's quite often it's the process as opposed to the system that gets in the way of people working effectively together. And the next thing is how do you train people? How do you give people the confidence and the training to be digitally literate enough at work? And one of the things that uh, is still uh, quite, quite shocking, if you like, um, is that there is still about 20% of the UK adult population that don't have all of the essential digital skills, all of the digital skills that are considered essential for life and work. That's one in five UK adults. That's a huge number of people. 
I used to run, um, I was CEO of a, of a digital inclusion um, organization. And uh, it's really, the, the, the situation has barely, has barely changed. So how do you increase people's confidence in using digital? Then what does that actually mean for interactions with supply chain, for example? What does that mean for interactions with client side? So for this particular uh, not-for-profit, it had uh, a lot of clients who could not use digital means to access them. So what does that mean for people running a phone line? So, you know, how, how, how sustainable is a call center for an organization of that type? How do you change people's behaviors? How do you support people to start to interact in a very different way? And again, how do you use data to demonstrate the scale of the problem, the reality of a situation? It's very easy for us to say, you know, well, we think most people can contact us online, but do we know? We think that everybody's got a telephone, but do we know? So how do we use data intelligently and effectively to help us create the right business strategy that's going to support our outcomes. So for this particular not-for-profit, there were a huge number of different areas to try and, try and understand and try and think about and try and implement. And again, I think the, 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 the reason that it was successful was because everybody was aligned behind a single outcome. We are doing this for the benefit of our clients. And being very client-focused, it made them realize that they had to change the way they worked internally in order to be of greater benefit externally. So again, this comes back to my point about the why. Who is going to benefit from this and why does that matter? Would you thank you, by the way, that, that's fascinating. I think um, it, it leads me on to naturally on to ask this one question, which I think you know, it, it's important for, for clarity's sake to ask. Is there a difference in your in your opinion between a not-for-profit, a public, and a private organization when it comes to change? Is there a laggard in that list, or is everyone sort of coming to the dance with the same sort of um, mindset and I guess um, appetite for change, or is there a difference? Again, it depends. And that's a terribly annoying response. Um, in some ways, sort of lumping all of the commercial sector together, all of the public sector together, all of the not-for-profit sector together is a little bit like lumping people with brown hair together and people with blonde hair together and people with grey hair together. And obviously, uh, there is more nuance uh, between, between um, uh, organisations and that. I think that uh, the... I think that, that there is an assumption that the commercial sector is much uh, is much more uh, focused on innovation and is much quicker to innovate. Now, I'm not sure that that is always borne out. There is a lot of work going on at the moment in the public sector, and particularly in particular government departments, in local government, NHS, and uh, and elsewhere. Excuse me to start. Um, to, to really innovate in the way they do things. It's almost an existential need to reinvent themselves in order to meet customer, a customer need. Um, and those 
customers happen to be citizens for the public sector. In the private sector, they're customers. Private sector, the need is monetary. These are private paying customers. And if they don't innovate and let others disrupt them and disrupt their industry, then they're going to lose their market share and they'll fail. So you know, it's an existential threat. But similarly for the public sector, there's a huge need to be more efficient in how they work, money is scarce, and also to be more effective in terms of delivering the rights of this to citizens. And going back to the point I made about data, of having the right data to be able to constantly improve services to the people that need them most. The not-for-profit sector, the cost of innovation is often a huge blocker and a huge barrier. I think one of the things to bear in mind is this transformation that we're talking about is about being different, being digital, not doing digital. So actually, it isn't always about spending lots and lots and lots of money on a huge system. It's actually about having the right cultural responses to the changes around it. So again, if there are ways of improving business processes, if there are ways of improving communication, if there are ways of improving um, the, the, inter, in, the interaction with whoever the, 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 the clients and customers are of that, of that not-for-profit. That can be equally transformative as creating some enormous, you know, create, completely changing all the technology. So I think people need to think, again, why do they need to do it? How can they do it in a way that is commensurate with their own resources and with the needs of the people they're doing this for. So I suppose to answer, I suppose you know, that's a very roundabout way of answering your question, but I suppose the different sectors have slightly different challenges and have slightly different needs. Um, if there is resources, it, it, it's, is an issue, you know, you do need to put resource into, into transformation. It doesn't necessarily have to be masses of money, but you need to put time um, and people into it in order to create the right culture for that, even if you're not spending lots and lots of money on, um, on, on, on big technological systems. So therefore, in making that business case in the public sector and the not-profit sector, it can be more challenging, but even in the private sector, it can be very challenging to make that case. So it goes back to how having having a really inspiring and 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 clear vision of this sunny upland, this new place that we're going to get to, and how that's going to benefit the organisation. But I think is absolutely key. I, I couldn't agree more. I think um, looking more towards and just changing gears, I guess, looking more towards the future um, as as we as we get towards towards the end of, of our episode like I could keep talking a great deal <laughs> I know but I know how uh, I know how busy your schedule is Rachel famed American uh, marketing thought leader Philip Kotler talks to the idea of marketing 5.0 in the 2020s and that's a, a post-covid world where baby boomers Gen X Gen Y Gen Z and Gen Alpha um, have to coexist uh, and businesses mm-hmm. are rightly so finding themselves pulled in multiple directions of adapting to a digital first world uh, and one where things like social consciousness um, really are table stakes. 
In in your mind, what are the modern challenges um, that that leaders need to be cognizant of in terms mm. of staying ahead of the curve? And just just to I guess give you some some guide, well, some pointers in terms of like where where I'm thinking about this question. It, mm. Are businesses able to set long-term strategies anymore with this this pressing issue of having to serve multiple generations in terms of your products and and your you know your your workforce is changing mm-hmm. and how they look at technology is is changing. So first and foremost, can you set a long-term strategy anymore, or 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 are the sh- or are the sands uh, shifting too quickly? And then what do you feel are the biggest priorities right now for, for leaders mm-hmm. who are concerned, um, not just locally, but globally in terms of the economy and, and where things where things are heading uh, in, in the world in that, you know, that marketing 5.0 uh, yeah. uh, structure? I think that's interesting, um, the, the, the marketing 5.0, because uh, many people talk about um, where we are currently as being in the fifth the fifth industrial revolution, which is where humans and machines work together as opposed to one working over the other. Now we could um, uh, you know, discuss for hours whether that's, that's true or not. I think it is difficult for organizations to set five to 10 year strategies now, simply because the, uh, the, 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 the reality is changing so so I think that the, the thing that to do is to focus on what is the strategic goal? Is it growth? Is it delivering? Is it product development? Is it delivering a better service to an individual? What is the actual strategic goal for that organization? And to maintain that as the North Star, if you like, as the as the end point, as that vision, uh, as that point of vision, then the detail of how to get there may well need to adapt as circumstances adapt, as the world changes around us. But it's easier, in a sense, to adapt the route to that endpoint if we're clear about what that endpoint looks like. So it's about the outcome, not the output. And I think this is something that, again, organizations have perhaps struggled with. People like to produce a document. This is our strategy. This is what we're going to do. This is the roadmap. Job done. Now we're just going to do it for the next five years. The danger with that is that that roadmap shifts. You know, you're taking a, you're taking a car journey from London to Edinburgh and the motorway's closed. Oh, my God, what do you do? You know, you didn't see that obstacle, you didn't see that. You've got to be able to adapt. You've got to be able to get out of a car, get onto a train and take the train or whatever. So it's very, very similar. The direction of travel needs to be clear, but the exact route for getting there has got to be able to shift and to adapt. Now, I know that that's not easy. It sounds very simple and it's not easy, but it is about having that, that, that mindset of adaptability and innovation, which is required in today's leaders. It's that agile leadership, which is really, really important. I think in terms of the key uh, issues facing uh, 
leaders today. Um, I mean, there are some macro trends that we're seeing, like climate change, like demographic change, um, war, COVID, um, you know, hybrid working, all these sorts of, of things. And again, as COVID has shown us, we have to be able to adapt. And actually, we did adapt unbelievably quickly to having to suddenly work from home, move everything online. I mean, it's extraordinary how quickly and how successfully really businesses, schools, organizations in general adapted to that because we had to, not because we were given a choice, but because we absolutely had to. So it can happen. That wasn't always perfect, of course, but it does show that when we have to adapt, we do adapt. So things um, like uh, the, the, those, those big sort of mega trends, which then have an impact on supply chains, on client bases, on, um, on, on, on transport of goods, on all of those sorts of things we need to be able to adapt for. The other end of the spectrum, AI, automation, and we haven't touched on AI. Um, you can't open a newspaper today, um, whether it's the mainstream press or trade press, without more, um, uh, more articles about, about AI. Um, that is disrupting the way we live, absolutely. So again, we've got to be really clear about how, where, you know, where is automation a reality? What does that then mean for our workforce? How do we retrain people for this fifth? industrial revolution world so that the human can have an equal place to the machine and actually the two can work in harmony to deliver more than the sum of the parts that requires a lot of retraining and a lot of thinking and a lot of thought and people don't want to have to do that thinking until they have to but if we wait for a covid like moment it's going to be too late because we need time to train people and to get people to think that their world may not be the same that they may not be doing the job they've done so to date for the rest of their lives. So automation, um, uh, megatrends and that impact that it has on the supply chain, talent retention, hugely important. Skills, how do we maintain uh, the, 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 the talent that we've got? You mentioned the, the, the newer generations, you know, Gen Z have got a completely different attitude to work than the attitude that I was brought up with to work. You don't go to work for, you know, monetary reward is not the only thing that matters. We need purpose now. There needs to be a different relationship between worker and, um, and employer. And all of those are things that employers who are from an older generation have got to understand. So adapting to the expectations of new entrance into the workforce is a very real um, challenge for for people and the expert you know if people if, 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 if young entrants into the workforce don't like what they see they walk with their feet um, some people call it entitlement some people just call it you know having you know using their own you, you know having free will um, but uh, these are these are a really these are really major issues that if people, if, if senior teams and uh, boards ignore, are going to create failure 
So constantly horizon scanning, constantly thinking about, you know, how are demographics just changing things? How is technology changing things? How is our relationship, how are geopolitics changing things? But if we don't adapt to reality, we're going to fail. Those are, uh, yeah, those, those are very, very telling words you've used there. And I, again, couldn't agree more. Um, what, what, what would you say um, is, you, is your number one advice for the next generation of change makers, um, for someone like yourself? If, 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 you, if you could pass on one piece of advice, what would that be? I guess my one piece of advice would be don't rely on the technology. Rely on the people. Because if you cannot get the people to engage with the technology, doesn't matter how fantastic the technology is that you've brought in, it's not going to do anything for you. So invest in your people because they ultimately are the change makers and the people that will, 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 will make all the difference between great change and mediocre change. Brilliant. Thank you. So, um, like I said, I, I could keep talking, but I know that uh, I know that you have a lot a lot going on. So I just want to say thank you, Rachel. Today's episode has been um, nothing short of, of fantastic. In in terms of anyone who is listening and and, and you know what Rachel's talked to that you know, they find really has resonated with them. What what can those people do if they if they want to engage with you further in terms of uh, talking about change management uh, and, and and the broader issues that that, that you've brought up? Where where can where can our audience go to to connect with you further and, and potentially and you know develop a relationship? Sure, I mean by all means uh, find me on LinkedIn um, or email me at Rachel at NeimanConsulting.co.uk. I'd be delighted to hear from anybody and to continue the conversation. Amazing. Thank you. So, so everyone, uh, there you have it today. Uh, that was uh, Rachel Neiman, our strategy hero. Um, again, Rachel, thank you so much for your time. And, and hopefully we, we get to talk again in the future. Absolutely. Thank you, James. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Likewise. Take care, Rachel.